This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. We plough and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay Till we bless the plain with the golden grain and the veil with the fragrant hay Our place we know, we are so low down at the landlord's feet Oh, we're not too low, the bread to grow, too low, the bread to eat. Welcome back, listeners, to this latest episode of A People's History of Scotland. You're here with me, Sarah Bennett, and author of the book, Chris Banbury. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. Hope you're well. So this week, we are looking at Chapter 7, entitled The Highland Clearances and Resistance. Now, Chris, the Highlands, I must admit, I've not visited the Highlands too many times, to, to my shame. But if you do visit, you're kind of greeted by a sort of sparsely inhabited but very beautiful wilderness. And I was doing a little bit of figure checking on the government website, the Highland government website. And it says that just over 238,000 people live across the Highland region. And that's out of a population of 5.46 million in the whole of Scotland. But the region itself is around a third of the total land in Scotland and over 10% of the whole land in, in Britain, in fact. And in this chapter, you point out that the Highlands hasn't always been like that. And even though it's a very beautiful landscape, it's not entirely natural. It's man-made. Or more accurately, what you say, it's a product of capitalism's development in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Can you just explain a bit about that? Yeah, in, in 1750, a third of Scotland's population still in the, lived north of the Highland line, in the Highlands and the Islands. Today, as you suggest, it's just 5%. In 1811, there were a quarter of a million sheep there. By the 1840s, there were almost a million. Within that period, sheep replaced people driven from their homes by direct eviction or through hunger and destitution. After the sheep and overgrazing came deer and the creation of hunting grounds for the elite. By 1884, a tenth of Scotland's land was given over to deer forests, greater than the size of Wales, and taking up the great majority of the land in the Crofting counties. I mean, that's quite astounding, really, if you think about it. Um, and we can come on to a more detail about the sheep and the different type of sheep later on. So we're talking about the clearances. Obviously, clearing of the land was part of that transition from feudalism to the rise of capitalism. So it took place across England as well. But there's something different about what happens in Scotland, and that seems to be the pace of change. Well, in England, the clearing of the rural population from the land, the process of enclosure, the privatisation of the land, took place over three centuries from Tudor times, the time of Henry VIII, particularly after the dissolution of the monasteries, until the Napoleonic Wars. In Roland Scotland, it took place at a more rapid pace in the 18th century. But it's largely escaped history because the cotters, celebrated by Robert Burns, one of them himself, tended to simply drift away to find new work in the new industries and mines of the west of Scotland or to immigrate to the Americas. The Highland currencies saw all the brutality which had occurred in England over decades concentrated in a short space of time. Britain was a fully capitalist state and capitalism abhors the existence of older economic forms. So starting from the 1790s, through and really to the mid-18th century, you have this mass clearance of the highlands and the islands and the destruction as a consequence of the Gaelic civilization. So what was Highland society like before the clearances? 
the Gaelic-speaking Highlands was essentially an offshoot of Gaelic Ireland. By the early 18th century, townships existed across the Highlands and Islands, even at what are now remote glens. The ruins can still be found among the bracken and the heather. These are made up of quackens, a collection of stone and turf houses and the outbuildings, close to the way the best land in which the people grew crops. Outside that was a mix of arable grazing and fallow land, and beyond that, common grazing land. Cattle were sold and traded, along to a less extent, horses and butter. This was a feudal society. The land was allocated by the, the landowner, sometimes a clan chief, sometimes not, to a taxman, who was the main leaseholder from the landowner, and rent was paid by peasants to him. The inhabitants nominally belonged to a clan whose chief could call on them for military service. To complicate matters, the clan chief was not necessarily the same as a feudal lord. So, for instance, McDonald's could live in land owned by the Dukes of the Argyle, head of Clan Campbell, but still give military service to the McDonald's of Kepok and the McDonald's of the Isles. So it was a fairly complicated structure, and it was fed also by a myth, which was a myth, that somehow the land was held by these clan chiefs for the clan itself, which had communal ownership of the land. That wasn't the case in any legal reality. So... You say that Gaelic society in its language actually had been in retreat for some time, but in the 18th century, two things really accelerated the process. What were those two elements in particular? The first and main one was a minority of the Highland clans had joined, it is a minority, had joined the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion, which aimed at restoring the exiled Stuart kings to the throne. They'd been booted out by the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the Stuarts were tied to the crown of France and the Vatican and looked to turn the clock back in Britain to the long-lost days of autocratic royal rule. As we know, the 1745 rebellion ended with a crushing military defeat at Cologne, less than a year after it begun. Previously, the British state had left sweeping dogs lie after such rebellions. But this time, scared by the fact the Jacobites had actually reached Derbyshire, it decided to break the military power of the clans of the West Highlands and to end feudalism throughout Scotland. In the Highlands, vicious repression which followed Clodden was deployed and laws put in place against carrying weapons and banning the feudal powers enjoyed by the nobles, against wearing of tartans, the playing of bagpipes, and so on. So the first element in this was the destruction of Gaelic society in the immediate aftermath of Culloden. So it sounds like the clans did give the British state a bit of a scare then at that time. It's important to state that it was a minority, as I said, of the clans who supported the Stuarts. A strong number, the Campbells, Monroes, and others, were Presbyterian by then and rallied to the Hanoverian crown government. Really, what was happening here was a relatively small feudal army, a majority who were recruited in the Lowlands, particularly in the northeast of Scotland and Angus, Perthshire was able to march into what was already a capitalist England because Highland society was still militarised, something which had ceased to exist in both the Lowland Scotland and in England. And because the main attention of the Hanoverians' armies were on the war with France, there was very little to stop them until eventually the king's son, the Duke of Cumberland, was summoned back to chase the Jacobite army back across the border and eventually north to Inverness and then Culloden. 
what I'm trying to get my head around is you've already mentioned it was quite a complicated set of relationships between the clans, the feudal lord, and obviously the followers of the clans. But did the clan chiefs command respect and did the followers always obey the clan chiefs or did that change over time? It was changing already by 1745. And for instance, uh, the clan Campbell lands, where leaseholds were no longer being given to taxmen who then allocated the land out to clan followers. Already the Campbells, who were already moving in a capitalist direction, were leasing out lands to the highest bidder. But the defeat of the Jacobite rising of 1745-1746 destroyed the link between the clan chiefs and the followers. Those clan chiefs no longer needed a military entourage. They had allowed a myth, as I said, to gather that they held the communal land in trust for the people. In fact, they owned the land. And after Culloden Highland nobles drifted south to Edinburgh and London and required cash, not fighting men, they were quick towards renting land out at commercial rates. Many Highlanders at this stage, by the sort of second half of this 18th century, chose to migrate either south to the Lowlands or to the Americas, but most remained eking out a living by raising cattle for sale down south and existing on potatoes and often money earned during seasonal work in the factories of central Scotland. One of the other elements that is always coming up throughout the book is the role of the church, the Church of Scotland in particular, obviously. So did that play a role in the clearances at all? Yes, uh, in the second factor of destroying the Gaelic communities of the Highlands and the Islands, where the missionaries deployed by the Church of Scotland, they used Gaelic to convert people to their Presbyterian faith. But once that was achieved, the new flocks were told their language was barbaric and sermons, preaching and education had to be solely in English. This reflected a residual racism of Lowland Scots against the Highlanders, which had developed in the course of the 17th and 18th century as Highland society being differentiated from Lowland society. Really, that was a recent development. There had not been any great distinction between Highland and Lowland societies for the vast majority of the Middle Ages and well into the early modern period. This is something which begins to develop as agricultural change particular reaches the Lowlands and Lowland Scotland becomes separate culturally, linguistically and economically from the Highlands. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, don't you, later on in the chapter how they're literally called an inferior race. But you did also mention earlier about the sort of militarised aspect of the Highlands. And that I think you said that the Highland men were therefore sought after by the British army to fight in the wars against France, for example, and to help secure the colonies. So the Highlanders become sort of enmeshed really in the building of the British state and empire. We have to remember that really from the 1740s, the British state was at war with France, Bourbon France, Revolutionary France, Napoleonic France. And in those endless wars, William Pitt, the younger, the British Prime Minister, decided that he was going to turn to the Highlanders, and he boasted about this, to raise regiments. These he saw as tough mountain men who could provide hardy shock troops for the British army both, as you mentioned, against France and to carve out new colonial lands. Tartan and the bagpipes had been banned post-Culloden, but they were permitted in the British Army. And in time, these would become the very symbols of old Scotland. By then, the Highlanders were no longer seen as a threat and had long gone in most cases. And for instance, a famous painting of General Wolfe dying, having captured Quebec in what's now Canada, features Lord uh, Lovett. He had been fighting for the Jacobites at Culloden in 1746. 
and was so keen now to prove his royalty to the Hanoverians serving in the British Army that he paid to be part of that painting, even though he wasn't actually there. So the Highlanders, who have been seen by Warren Scots, by the English, as being the enemy, loyal to the Stuart crown, now were transformed into like military heroes of Britain and its empire. And countless paintings were produced of Highland troops in action. You know, the thin red line at Balaclava in the Crimean War, another painting showing the news of the victory at Waterloo of Napoleon being brought to Chelsea Hospital, shows pensioners receiving that news, but also it's a Highland soldier. There's also a young black boy, which reflects the kind of reality of British uh, armed forces at the time, which had plenty of people from the Highlands and plenty of people from across what is now the British Empire. And London, of course, also had a large black population. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, is it the National Portrait Gallery on Queen Street in Edinburgh, where if you go up to the top floors and look at the, the pictures depicting the development, if you like, of Scotland, you come to, I can't remember which room it is, but if you go and visit, you suddenly get to one room where everybody is wearing tartan. No one was wearing tartan before, and then suddenly everyone's regaling in, in the different tartans. As we've discussed previously, the big event was the Walter Scott's managed King George IV visit to Edinburgh. Highland chiefs were brought down and told to pick a clan taunton from the woolen manufacturers in Edinburgh. And they were encouraged to wear tartan and George IV wore a kilt. So, I mean, that really led to this huge expansion of tartanry, along with, of course, the, the impact of the Highland regiments who always had worn Highland dress, even when it was banned. So let's go back to the land, though, because as we've been talking about over at least the last chapter and this one as well, the commercialisation of the land that's now coming in. How did that play out for those landlords who are obviously seeking to drive up their revenues? Well, what did for so much of the population was the breeding of new stocks of sheep. The Cheviot, which obviously came from the borders where the Cheviot Hills are, and the Blackface, which could thrive in the hardy conditions of the Highlands, producing a good fleece of wool for the woolen mills of the lowlands in northern England. Rents were being driven up, and when Highlanders could not pay, they were served with eviction orders. In the final decades of the 18th century, some 200,000 had already been driven from the land in this way by the landlords evicting them because they couldn't pay soaring rents. They'd been cleared to make way for sheep. And there had been opposition to this. More than two decades before Waterloo in 1792, the year of the sheep, there was a virtual uprising in Ross against the new sheep walks. It was reported that, quote, a mob of about 400 strong are now actually employed in collecting the sheep over all this in the neighbouring county of Sutherland. And they were collecting the sheep to drive them off. By early August, some 6,000 sheep had been driven south. And when troops intervened, the men simply melted away. A few were captured, some being banished from Scotland, and one being transported to Botany Bay in Australia. And the commander of the troops wrote to London that no disloyalty or spirit of rebellion or dislike to His Majesty's person or His Majesty's government is in the least concerned in these tumults. So, I mean, that, that reflected a, a basic loyalty to the Hanoverian regime, but also opposition to what was being done to them by the landlords. So this did meet resistance, something which for a long time was hidden from history. I mean, it's fascinating. 1792 is actually called the Year of the Sheep. <laughs> The replacement of people by sheep, and that obviously is driving up the rents, which 
people can no longer afford to pay, so they're served with eviction notices. But presumably as well, it's uh, turning what was arable land for food produce over to grazing land for animals, so reducing the amount of land available for people just to grow other crops. Yes, there were people were driven from the holdings, and the sheep, as I said, eventually actually overgrazed the land. Land which had been used for rearing cattle was now being used for sheep runs. And there was a further collapse of the Highland economy after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. There was end of the demand for beef, which had been up to now driven south, had been sold off in large part to feed the British Army and Navy. And also the peasants had been able to collect seawood because the restrictions on trade, the Napoleonic ban on trade with Britain, had meant artificial fertilizer was in short supply and seaweed, kelp, was used as fertilizer. With the end of those two factors, landlords now looked to turning over all land to sheep grazing and removing the crofters altogether. And the most infamous occurrences were on the huge estate of the Countess of Sutherland. Her husband, Lord Stafford, removed between 6,000 and 10,000 tenants between 1807 and 1821. The Strath of Kildonan was cleared of its people between 1813 and 1819. With such savagery, it provoked a reaction. So, for instance, in December 1812, an agent for woolen sheep farmers visited the Strath of Kildonan asking questions of the tenants who proceeded to run him off the land. He immediately claimed he'd been threatened with his life and the Marquis of Stafford grabbed at his claim to mobilise his male estate workers as special constables and to summon a detachment of soldiers. Faced with this, the locals melted away and the upper strath was cleared within three months. They were offered immigration or resettlement in the town of Helmsdale. However, Stafford's agent, a lone Scot, Patrick Seller, believed this response had been too soft. Worse was to follow in the parishes of Far and Kildoran, where the land was in the hands of Seller. Later in the century, the Highland historian Alexander Mackenzie wrote a history of the Highland clearances, published in 1883, which described Seller's ill treatment. The proceedings were carried out, he wrote, with great rapidity and the most reckless cruelty. The cries of the victims, the confusion, the despair and the horror painted on the countenance of the one party and the exulting ferocity of the other beggar all descriptions. In this scene, Mr. Seller was present and apparently as sworn by several witnesses in his subsequent trial, ordering a direct in the hall. Many deaths ensued from alarm, from fatigue and cold, the people having been instantly deprived of shelter and left to the mercies of the elements. Pregnant women were taken in premature labour and several children did not long survive their sufferings. In total, 2,000 people were removed from Condonan. When Seller was charged with murder for burning down an old woman's house, a hand-picked jury of landowners found him not guilty. But he brought bad publicity to the southern estate and he constantly lost his job. I mean, it's shocking, the brutality of it, of course, and perhaps what we'll come on to in a bit is that there wasn't perhaps more of a sort of a resistance to that, but we'll, we can talk about that in a moment. Also, as well as the actual brutality of the actions taken against the, the Highlanders themselves, was the ideological warfare describing them as, as an inferior race. Of course, we're seeing the rise of the, the colonies as well, where you have other inferior races, the others abroad. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Well, let's take James Locke, who was an Edinburgh lawyer, and for 40 years from 1812 onwards was commissioner for the Marquis of Stafford. He would write an apology for his employers, but his racism towards their tenants was never far from the surface, with him complaining, their habits and ideas quite incompatible with the customs of regular society and civilised life. 
His concern was surprised he said wool for the staple manufacture of England and to convert the people to the habits of regular and continued industry. A young journalist sent by the Scotsman to the Highlands exhibited the same racism, writing in 1847, when he said the Highlanders were an inferior race to the Lowland Saxon. Robert Knox, the Edinburgh surgeon who bought bodies for the great Snatchers Burke and Hare, believed in the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race and wrote that the Highlanders must be forced from the soil. Self would have concurred with this because he regarded Highlanders as racial degenerates. And we should remember that the collapse of Highland society, the clan chief, etc., had also left a lot of the population in a very confused state, not really knowing where to go or how to react. It took time for them to begin to react to the occurrences, but react they did. So there, there was resistance at, at some point then? Yeah, as I said, at the height of the occurrences, there was resistance, but it was never organised or effective. As I said, obedience to the clan chief still counted, even when he was the one ordering you onto the immigrant boats, while ministers stressed obedience to the law, even when they sympathised with their flock. Are you enjoying this episode of A People's History of Scotland? Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. You can find us at Contour Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This way, you'll get every episode as soon as it's released, as well as all the other shows on Contour Radio Podcast Network. And head over to Contour.Scot, where you can read up-to-date analysis of news, culture, and events in Scotland and across the globe. So there must have been quite large swathes of people from the Highlands immigrating. You've mentioned Canada. Is there quite a lot of the population that we know that would have gone abroad at that point? Yes, huge numbers. Uh, huge numbers from Scotland in general, but at this stage, the Highlands and the Islands in particular. And North America was uh, the obvious place to go. Australia to a lesser extent, but North America already had Highland settlers. Some of the taxmen who'd been sacked from their jobs essentially had gone to Canada and encouraged the tenants to uh, to migrate. Some of the landlords carrying out the currencies actually provided boats for people to get on. You know, by the close of the 19th century, there was and there still are Gaelic-speaking societies, particularly on the eastern seaboard of Canada. And in fact, at one stage, more Gaelic speakers in Canada than there were in Scotland. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, well, let's go back to closer to home again. Let's actually talk a little bit about Ireland, maybe, because most people know about the Great Famine in Ireland caused by the failure of the potato crop. But perhaps what isn't as well known is that the blight that destroyed the potato crop also hit the highlands and islands too. So what was the effect of the potato blight in the highlands and why were the outcomes so different over in Ireland than they were uh, in Scotland? As you suggest, the potato had become, as in Ireland, the main staple food of the population. It was relatively easy growing, even on quite difficult land. The potato blight in 1846 brought the likelihood of famine to the highlands. In response, Charles Trevelyan, under Secretary of the Treasurer, wrote, the people cannot, under any circumstances, be allowed to starve. In the case of Ireland, he did the exact opposite, letting hundreds of thousands of people die, arguing that the famine was a mechanism, as he said, for reducing a surplus population. And again, in contrast to Ireland, the starvation in the Highlands became apparent. The British government did intervene to feed the population. Just two Deaths from starvation are recorded, both in the hard-hit population of the Isle of Barra, whose people were largely cleared in 1853 and sent to Quebec in Canada. This contrasts with Ireland, where the Great Famine killed thousands. 
while nominally Ireland was part of the UK, was, of course, in reality a colony and seen as separate. The Highlands were regarded by the British government as an integral part of the UK, and starvation could not be permitted there, uh, although immigration was encouraged. I mean, we should remember as well, by now, the vast majority of Highlands' population was Protestant, unlike in Ireland, and large numbers of Highlanders were serving or had served the British Armed Forces. So it was a relatively different situation because it was seen as being part of the United Kingdom and famine could not take place there, unlike in Ireland. But still not enough to save people from the evictions because they continued despite the famine. Yes. Uh, in 1853, attempts were made to clear the people of Colgac and Western Ross and Green Yards near Ardgay and Strathcarran. The summonses carried by the sheriff's officer were seized and destroyed by a crowd of women and the sheriff officer was stripped naked and put in a boat to be sent back. At Green Yards, matters took a more violent turn. The sheriff's officer, accompanied by 35 police, were confronted by a crowd of 300, two-thirds women. The women stood at the front, armed with stones, when the men carrying sticks were at the rear. The police used their batons, and 15 or 16 women were seriously injured. They were taken to the jail in Tain before being released. So we see resistance taking place, yes. But who was actually clearing the estates? Because I don't think, from what you said, it's not in the main, actually, English landlords. It's Scottish landlords. Yes, I'll give you an example of the Malcolms, originally Macallums of Paul Tower who had traditionally been associated with Clan Campbell. They became established as landowners in Mid-Argyle. In the 1750s, they became plantation owners in Jamaica, slave plantations, changing their name from Macallum to Malcolm. The family's commercial success was founded on their commodity trading in slaves, but also sugar, rum, cotton, and cattle. Neil Malcolm was an MP for Boston, with an address in fashionable Hanover Square in London. He had bought up a large estate in Argyle, having a fine house built at Port Alloc. The abolish of slavery had led him to be paid compensation, £40,000, for his loss of 2,181 slaves. The slaves didn't get compensation, the slave owner did. On April 4, 1848, Malcolm served a notice to 40 of his tenant farmers in Araconan in Capdale on the 27th of May, read they were to flit and remove themselves. Eviction writers came not only during the potato famine, but just after the tenant farmers had finished sowing of their crops. The first attempt to evict them came in 13th of June, but tenants resisted attempts by the sheriff's officers, the estate factor, and the backup team of 25 men to remove them. On July 7th, the same group returned to Arishonan, accompanied by the superintendent of police for the Argyle and nine officers. They planned to remove not only cattle, but also the tenants and quarters and the furnishings from their homes. They were met by some 60 to 100 people of Arashonan and neighbouring communities armed with sticks and stones. Another character, Colonel uh, John Gordon of Quinney, Aberdeenshire, had six plantations in the uh, Caribbean and used the compensation he received when slavery was abolished to buy land in Bimbecula, South Eust and Barra. In 1851, he began clearing the inhabitants for the land. One account of this reads, One stout highlander named Angus Johnson resisted with such pith they had to handcuff him before he could be mastered, and he was marched between four officers on board the immigrant ship. And Barra attempts were made to handcuff the evictees. Some managed to run to the hills where they were hunted down by dogs. A number of families were separated. According to the jaws of the sheep, she said, I have seen big, strong man, champions of the countryside, the stalwarts of the world, be bound on what Boysdale Key and cast into the ship as would be done to a batch of horses or cattle. 
The bailiff and the ground officers and the policemen gather round them in pursuit. The biggest act of resistance came on Sky in 1882 with the Battle of the Braes. But you can read about that in my People's History of Scotland. But for those that didn't get onto those boats, they just dispersed, did they, and had to seek out a living in the new towns, in the new industries? What, what, would, what would they be doing? Some, some, a small number were able to settle in new towns like Owlpool and Helmsdale and uh, earn a living through fishing. The vast majority moved either emigrated or moved south to the lowlands of Scotland and the factories of Kwaisei. This is in part what was going on here. As in Ireland with the famine, the, the export of people to create an industrial proletariat for the British Industrial Revolution. What we also see in the second half of the 19th century is a new form of resistance which proved quite effective. Let's talk about Ireland for a minute, because over in Ireland, the Land League was playing a really key and impressive role in resisting evictions over there in the latter half of the 19th century. So I'm just wondering about the relationship between Scotland, the Highlands in particular, and Ireland, and whether the Land League had an impact on what was going on during the clearances. Yes. Although it has to be said, of course, this wasn't the case. Attempts by the Land League in Ireland and its leader, Michael Davitt, were rebuffed, uh, largely because the Irish were treated as suspicion, in part because they were Catholic. But that changed as resistance to the clearances led to radicalisation. Spurred on by the Irish example, the Highland League, also entitled the Highland Land Law Reforms Association, was formed. Five of its members were elected to Westminster in the 1885 UK general election including an old associate of Karl Marx, Gavin Clark, and Keith Ness. Another of the MPs returned was D.H. McFarlane, a Scottish Roman Catholic, who'd previously sat for an Irish constituency. So this is quite interesting because in a Scotland which was blighted by sectarianism against the Irish and Catholicism at that time, here we have someone who is a Catholic being elected and have served as an Irish MP, being elected in an overwhelming way, Presbyterian Reformed Church, constituency. And those MPs helped secure the Crofters Holding Act of the following, uh, following year, which gave the Crofters security of tenure, and which created a commission which reduced their rents. The Wanwee's best-known slogan was a Gaelic one, which is usually translated as, the people are mightier than a lord. And as well as parliamentary politics, the Highland would encourage direct action. It also found an audience in the Lowlands, and that would feed it into the creation of the Labour Party. I mean, among the speakers were Cunningham Graham, Champion Alan Week, who was one of the founders of the, Wab the ILP and the Labour Representation Committee. It also should be added, Michael Davitt from Ireland won an audience in both the Lowlands and the Highlands. So that distrust of Ireland had broken down. And eventually, the remaining crofters won legal possession for their holdings. Presumably, that wasn't a large number of crofters at no. that point. No. No. And as I said, overgrazing by sheep had reduced the land to becoming deer forest hunting grounds for deer or grouse. To me, that makes up 10% of Scotland's land, but it's a much higher percentage in the Highlands and Islands. This is land owned by the wealthy for the supposed sport of other wealthy people. What's going on here is that even giving crofters rights, the essential poverty of Highland society wasn't being addressed, and that poverty was leading to migration as people went for a better life. In my book, I state this. In 2010, more than 83% of land in Scotland, 94% of our total land mass, was privately owned. Just 969 individuals owned 60% of it. 
the vast majority of Scots own none. And I quote Wesley Riddick thus, the single biggest obstacle to the transformation of Scottish rural communities is a lack of control over land, adding that the real change will remain forever blocked by the power of big landowners, whoever wins at Hollywood. And that remains the case. It's particularly the case in the Highlands and Islands. We've seen things like community buyouts of islands and so on, held communally, but we are still seeing this dominance of major landlords over Scotland's land and over the Highlands and Islands. And I want to leave the last words to Thomas Johnson, writing in our Scots noble families at the beginning of the 20th century. He said, show the people that our old nobility is not noble, that its lands are stolen lands, stolen either by force or fraud. Show people that the title deeds are raping, murder, massacre, cheating, or court harlotry. Dissolve the halo of divinity that sounds their residue title. I'll just add that all of that is true for the most recent of our landowners. Yes, indeed. Um, I think even in our very short introductory episode, the, the question of land and land ownership was right up there from the outset, and it will continue to be a theme throughout the book. So the clearances, Culloden, I mean, this really marks a turning point as we move now really into the rise of industrialization. I think it marks a Korean point in that, as I said at the very beginning, there was very little differentiation between the, the highlands and the lowlands until probably around the 17th century. And even as late as 1750, I mean, the highlands had a third of the Scottish population. That all changes. There's this attempt to portray that the highlands as a racial enemy, if you like, and then this glorification of the highlanders as noble warriors of empire. But of course, nothing is done to the fact that while they're fighting for Britain, in, for instance, the Crimea, they're being evicted from the land back home. Nothing is done about that. And suddenly, to their surprise, the British government finds out there is no more large-scale recruitment in the Highlands because the people have gone. By that stage, it's too late. Right. Well, that's great. The next chapter, we are looking at Scotland in the 19th century. I'm sure we'll develop a few more of these themes and explore new ones as well. But for now, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to you again, Chris. And we'll be back again some point soon. Bye for now. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A People's History of Scotland. This series is only made possible because of support from listeners like you. If you'd like to help us make more shows like this, please head over to Contra.Scot and make a donation or subscribe to our Patreon channel. The music is by Ewan McLennan from the album Stories Still Untold. Special thanks to him for allowing us to use this song. Well, oh, well, oh, as to war we go To fight some foreign country That yesterday was our greatest friend Today's our enemy God bless our boys, the papers scream Praise them, the churchmen cry But oh, when the war is done and we're all home Who cares if we live or die? Well, oh, well, oh, till that happy day We're called to a heaven on high Oh, and the freedom we never had in our lives Will be there on the day we die But have you seen, oh, what suffering hell on earth For the promise of a heaven above Oh, I not join the fight Till that one day we might See a heaven down here below See a heaven down here below